invite you to be turning to Acts 15. That's where we're at today. If you remember last week, we took a break in the book of Romans. And I felt as I was studying through this text two weeks ago that I came to a block and And I sat down to look at the sermon that I began, and I still felt a block. (laughs) But there were a few words that I was drawn to. Rebuild, restore, and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Perhaps it's the cultural drama that we find ourselves in, but I felt strongly about those words. It's only a few verses from where we last left off. Nevertheless, um, I felt like that's what the Lord wants us to slow down and look at these few verses together. But I feel it's important in light of what we read today to remind us again of Luke's thesis statement, if you will, of the book of Acts. He says in Acts 1.8, coming out of the mouth of Jesus, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Then the book of Acts goes on to explain in Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then following in the proceeding chapters, we see the witness of Christians in Jerusalem, and then the surrounding region of Judea, the neighboring region of Samaria, and we recently finished the account of Barnabas and Saul's first missionary journey, heading out into what we would call the ends of the earth. The problem with witnessing Christ, the problem with witnessing about Christ with Samaritans and with the Romans and the Greeks, the latter two Romans and Greeks following under the category of Gentiles or peoples from the ends of the earth, um, as opposed to the Jews, is that there is this centuries long, if not about a millennia and a half long understanding of local deity. That though Jews understood Yahweh to be one and God of the heavens and earth and all that dwell therein, they have trouble believing the implications that God is for and God wants a relationship with every single person, even outside the Jews. See, Yahweh was Israel's God. And certainly His communion with Israel is unique, but not only has Jesus commanded the message of Yahweh's salvation for all people to be shared, but suddenly we have evidence of God infilling the lives of people beyond Jewish in the exact same ways He filled the Jews themselves. People like Peter and Paul. And so the church has to come together to really grapple with this fact. In fact, Paul and Barnabas had visited some northern Grecian regions where many more converts to Jesus has been made, and they return home to their church in Antioch, Syria. And some teachers from the Judean area had come up to that church and said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas really aren't fans of that message. So basically, a big church council is called, and it's being had in Jerusalem. And so we catch up 
in the middle of that council. Two weeks ago, we talked about Paul and Barnabas recounting their missionary travels. And Peter was talking about his interaction with Cornelius and his entire household. So I invite you to stand now in honor of reading and hearing the Word of God as we dig into Acts 15, verses 13 through 18. We read... After they finished speaking, James replied, they finished being Paul and Barnabas speaking about their missionary endeavors. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Let's pray. Father, um... We're so grateful that just as the church is grappling with a very real situation in Acts 15, Gentiles coming into the church, how does that square away with their thinking, what they know about the Bible, what they know about you? Father, you still meet us where we're at today. We have problems, situations, and I think it's the enemy who wants to tempt us to Stay away from the Bible. Well, those are just ancient problems, things you don't need to know about. And then tempt us to search elsewhere to find answers. Father, your word is always the answer. What you would say to us is always the answer. You tell us in Proverbs that you created wisdom. Wisdom was with you from the beginning. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So help us, Father, to fear you, to love you, to want to love and serve you. Help us to believe and show us that you speak to us today. We ask and we pray that you would be speaking and not I. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I've mentioned here a few sermons ago that it seemed a gracious providence in the year of 2020 as racial tensions seemed to sweep our land of befriending through the Internet two black friends, one from Ohio, another one from Louisiana. In fact, the one from Louisiana says that some of his family lost houses in the hurricanes last week. A few weeks ago in conversation, this friend of mine from Ohio starts to bring up the Black Lives Matter protest and movement. I was a little leery approaching him in the conversation because for me, though I of course love, care, and agree that every single race in mankind has dignity and value and respect and is created in the glorious image of God, I, I felt the Black Lives Matter brand, if you will, aren't just three words that they stand behind, but that the movement itself, according to its website, has more goals unrelated to the racial relations that it seeks to accomplish. And pretty quickly, after Black Lives Matter was brought up, this brother of mine says that he called out the movement for what it was in one of his sermons. 
And he said, and I quote, I'm a follower of Christ first. My identity isn't skin, but the resurrection of Christ. And then he told me, he says, I will raise my son, not in the blackness, not in his blackness, but Christ centered. (laughs) And then he said, red is the only color that matters, referring to the blood of Jesus. (laughs) I took a sigh of relief. (laughs) What it showed for me in a very real way is how he and I are truly brothers because of Christ. We heard this today in the gospel accounts. I didn't plan it this way. Maybe God did. This episode where Jesus' mother and brothers came to collect Jesus, believing him to be crazy with the ministry he's amassing. So Mark tells us. But when they come to collect Jesus, Jesus says this, and the way that Luke records it, the same author, he says, My mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so supposedly what many are seeking for in Black Lives Matter, at least for those who just joined the trend and maybe don't understand the movement, uh, is racial reconciliation. But it is had so simply between me and my friends because of Christ. Because we are those who hear the word of God and do it. The gospel is the unifier. In our passage, I think of three Towering parties that really come from different backgrounds. First, we have Paul and Barnabas. Paul himself, a former persecutor of Christians, staunchly pharisaical. Barnabas is mentioned uh, post the ascension of Jesus, so maybe I'm, I'm assuming that he's more than likely a follower, perhaps from Pentecost or maybe a little after. If he was notable among the greater crowds who followed Jesus, I would have thought that Luke would have told us in his gospel account. But um, this party, Luke, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas, just spent upwards of two to three years in the Turkish mountains, making converts, being persecuted for the sake of Jesus, planting churches, and preaching Christ and grace to the Gentile. The second of these towering parties. Peter, we know Peter. He's been with Jesus for three and a half years. He's considered a leader among equals. He told his story about Cornelius in the passage, how God has shown no partiality, but rather the spirit that fell out on Pentecost also fell out on Cornelius and his household when they accepted Jesus through faith. And to demand any more from Gentiles such as the Jewish law, would to be put God to the test, since God has already shown through His Spirit that they are indeed saved. So now the third towering party is none other than James, the brother of Jesus. The Gospel makes it clear that James was not a follower of Jesus. Perhaps he was one of the brothers who came with Mary to retrieve Jesus. John 7, 5 tells us that Jesus' own brothers did not believe him. But then Paul would later uh, possibly hear from James himself, and he would write this down in his letter to the Corinthians, that Jesus visited James after his resurrection. And the way that Paul singles out James, it speaks to me that perhaps this is a one-on-one encounter. It's not that James saw him in a crowd, but, uh, you know, I can just see Jesus told you so. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, but James is changed. James is converted. 
Apparently, he's so influential that he's become who he is at Jerusalem. You know, a few years ago, I believe it was uh, the TV channel NBC, no less, there was this well-received 2012 drama Bible series that aired in um, the History Channel. But then a few years later, there's this sequel series called A.D., The Bible Continues. And, you know, you can be critical and say that didn't happen, that didn't happen, in which there's a lot of parts that's true. No, that didn't happen in the Bible. But it was pulling out from the first ten chapters, I think, of Acts, this series was. It's actually where I got a lot of my pictures I use in our series. And I bring, that up to, I bring this up to say that it shed real good light on James for me, the brother of Jesus. In fact, I don't know if I've completely understood or appreciated the political, and I use that term relatively lightly, but political position of James to be in such a hostile city, Jerusalem. And he's a leader or a pastor, if you will. And so for Jerusalem, there was the persecution that maybe started or took off with the death of Stephen the martyr. And then there was the Sanhedrin constantly having the apostles in prison. But then there was just constant unrest with the Romans. And amid all of this, Jesus' church is staying put and growing under the the Twelve's leadership. But then there also seems to be evidence in the book of Acts that there is a strong leadership role for James. And in fact, Paul would state in the book of Galatians that James, along with Peter and John, appeared to him to be pillars of the church, leaders. So we have these three parties from such diverse backgrounds, Paul and Barnabas, Peter and James, but they're all united by the gospel and they're all united in their belief in grace and the gospel is the unifier. Luke, the author of Acts, he he seems to, to bring out the diplomatic leadership here of James because after Paul and Barnabas who are, by default, the instigators, if you will, of this discussion that that had to be had by the church simply by being virtues of being missionaries to the Gentiles. Look at who James decides to focus on, though. He says again, after they, again, talking about Paul and Barnabas, finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, Peter just has lots of names, doesn't he? Is he Simon? Is he Peter? Is he Cephas? Is he Simeon? Um, Peter uses the name Simeon for himself at the beginning of 2 Peter 1. But Barnabas had gone to Antioch to help pastor it. Barnabas was the one who got Paul out of Tarsus to help with the Antioch church. Paul and Barnabas were the kind of ones under the spotlight here. So what James does is refer only to Peter's words. Peter, again, is a first among equals, and he's a close friend of Jesus. And James could be trying, even in this, to bring any division among the church together and say, hey, I agree with what Peter says. And granted, Peter agreed wholeheartedly with what Paul and Barnabas says. (laughs) But James is choosing a less controversial character to agree with. This is not judgment in over Paul or Barnabas, but perhaps it could be an intentional direction for the sake of those who may not respect Paul or Barnabas as much as they would respect Peter. And James summarizes Peter's words, and like Peter did, James frames it this way. He basically says, God did this. (laughs) 
God did this. God visited the Gentiles. It wasn't Peter who decided one day, I think I'll go find me a Roman centurion to talk to. (laughs) It wasn't Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who said, well, I need to find me a devout Jew and see if anything big has happened in the Jewish faith that might include me a bit more. (laughs) No, it was God who gave dreams and visions to both Peter and Cornelius. It was God who brought them together. It was God who poured out the Holy Spirit on Cornelius. And all Peter could say is, who can deny baptizing these men? (laughs) The Spirit has filled them. Who can argue against that? So this is a recent reality. It was upwards of ten years, but it was recent in that it wasn't a Scripture to trifle with. It was an eyewitness event by none other than Peter and no doubt Perhaps some of the brothers that were with him as they went to Cornelius could be at this council here. But God did this for a reason. He takes from them, the Gentiles, a people for his name. So this is a term of ownership, a term of possession. This is a subtle reference to the fact that the church is coming to be defined the same way Israel was in the Old Testament. This gets inarguably clearest, perhaps, in Peter's own letter to the churches. If you look at 1 Peter 1, you see that Peter is no doubt addressing churches of both Jews and Gentiles. And in his second chapter of that letter, he calls the church names that the Old Testament ethnic Israel enjoyed. He calls them, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But then he seems to address the, the Gentiles in particular in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God did this. And as I touched on it last week, it's been God's plan from the beginning. That Jesus is the realized Israel and the church universal, male, female, Jew, non-Jew. It's all been God's plan from the beginning. And the evidence of that was in Peter's day and James' day and Paul and Barnabas' day. James, though, is just not comfortable with taking Peter's words. He wants to add words from the Scriptures to verify the reality taking place. So for the Judaizers, these are the people who say circumcision needs to happen. We need to follow the law of Moses, the Gentiles. They think they have the weight of the Scriptures with them. And so far, James has done in his weighing, and he says, yes, I agree with Peter. And that's all he said so far. Peter had, of course, presented his Scriptures, and you know Paul, how he brilliantly argues cases. I'm sure they were all sleeping by the time he was done with all the Scriptures he used. But James takes from Amos. And we read in Acts 15, 15, and 16 here, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The passage of Amos this is taken from is actually the closing words of Amos. Amos 9, 11, and 12. There's only three verses left after that in the book. Amos was prophesying towards the end of the northern kingdom. Real quick, Israel 
was separated into north and south kingdoms. Israel was a name retained for the north. Judah was often the name for the south. And at the final end of Amos was a prophecy looking towards the restoration of the kingdom. A restoration of Israel, really. And he says again, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The tent, the tabernacle, ultimately the temple, this symbol of God's dwelling place, and the centrality of Israel as a people. Amos says it will be rebuilt. In fact, let's look at the last two verses of Amos 9, 14 and 15, which says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of that land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Doesn't that sound kind of final? Doesn't that sound kind of everlasting? Never again be uprooted. I wondered this. Is after the Babylonian exile and after Cyrus releases the Jews to go back. But then there's this Greek invasion. And if you know your history between the Old and New Testament, before Rome invades, Israel actually enjoys some independence. I wonder if it's in that independence with territory stretching in many directions, if the people thought then, it's ours forever. It's ours forever. Then Rome invades. But what is James doing here? He says he agrees with Peter, but then he brings scriptures to weigh in on the topic, and he brings Amos 9. So is he not in effect saying, not only have we witnessed Peter, what Peter has delivered to us about God, making himself for a people for the Gentiles, But we are witnessing Amos 9. In other words, he's saying God has returned. God has rebuilt the fallen tent or the tabernacle of David. The ruins are being rebuilt. It's being restored. What is he saying? Where? What is he talking about? Israel is still conquered. The Romans are still around. What James is is telling us is this. Amos 9 is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, that all the promises of God, how many? (laughs) All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. James is saying then, included in the promise of, or James is saying that in those, in that all is also included the promise of a restored house of David. Let us not miss this from James or from Amos. It's the same point of Peter. I says God, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And what God is talking about and what Peter talks about also in his letters is that he, God, is making a spiritual house, a spiritual house that finds their foundation in Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, we read, as you, Jew and Gentile church, come to him, Jesus A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is the tent of David that has fallen. 
and that the ruins are being rebuilt and restored. And far beyond any temple or any city is the amazing reality of Jesus being discussed in this council that God is not interested in rebuilding Jerusalem. He's interested in rebuilding the world. He's interested in rebuilding humanity. Isn't that what our world needs? As you might know, because I'm a Christian and I'm going to go to heaven, I like hockey. (laughs) What? I was just making sure you're listening. There were two hockey games on on two nights this week that I had plans of going to town to watch it with another pastor named Kevin who also likes hockey. Um, First night was Tuesday night, but some other appointments got shuffled around. I couldn't make Tuesday night work. The other possibility was Friday night. And uh, we were going to make that work, but as I'm working on my sermon on Thursday, I get this annoying notification on my phone. The NHL, the National Hockey League, has decided to postpone games and not play to show their support against racism. I texted my friend Kevin. I said, the hockey gods are against us. But, again, at its basic core, sure, I, along with anyone else, have no tolerance for racism. I find it very anti-biblical, ungodly. Every single person is created in the image of God. The Bible says over and over to show no partiality. However, I personally don't see how postponing hockey games will in any way, shape, or form show support for anti-racism. I just think logically, sorry. But it goes to show this. Political agendas aside, there are enough people invested in what they might believe to be simple anti-racism and enough people fired up at racial injustice because they long for a world where racism is not existent. Other agendas aside, I believe many people simply want a world without racism. Now, I'm not commenting on the validity of media-reported deaths for racist reasons or not. I'm just saying that the fact that, that racism still does exist has people upset. And rightly so. It is unjust. It's tragic. It's a sin. And what James is talking about here, that's the answer. Jesus, it's the answer. Protesting is not the answer. Rioting is not the answer. Reparations, digging up the past, making demands, biting back, violence, not the answer. God has given the answer. God has returned. God has rebuilt the tent of David that has fallen. God has rebuilt the ruins. He has restored humanity. What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He calls his body the temple. Paul would go to flesh out, excuse the pun, but he fleshes out in his writings saying that Jesus is the temple where the people of God come to meet. And so does Peter, as we've already seen in his writings. I get pretty upset over all this rioting. Why do you need to tear down a statue of an elk in Portland? I don't see any significance or practical help building towards any sort of reconciliation or healing in our land. But the question I have is this for me personally, because it's easy for me to point the finger and say, how stupid of you. Do I share the answer? Am I sharing the answer? Am I putting my hope, my trust, my faith, everything in the answer of Christ? For any of us who at any time interact with anybody else, are we aware that we have the answer to not just the rioting, racist problems, but every single problem? Kevin, how can you simplify life that much? 
I just believe so much in the fact that in Christ we have a Redeemer who excels at redemption. That's His specialty. Which means racism, corruption, relationship problems, physical illness. The answer, the power to heal and redeem and restore can all be found in Christ. With God having rebuilt and restored us, He now invites the remnant. James closes his quoted scripture in his statements to the council, ending on the last part of Amos. But also he seems to bring up Isaiah. Read with me. We'll pick up from verse 16 for context. And he says, uh, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant, other translations would say rest here, of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Many of you know this, but uh, Facebook is creepy. It tailors advertisements to your interests. It picks up your interest because it sees maybe what you post, groups that you're in, posts and videos that you follow. Well, I happen to like lots of Bible groups. And sometime this past week, I got introduced to something called the Pocket Testament League. It's nothing new. It's just another form, if you will, of Gideon's or Bible handing out evangelism groups. They just print the books uh, of John, and I think they make this book of John available in three to four translations. I think the best-selling translations. Then they offer it to dress it up with different covers, um, each with inviting statements on the front, like, how do I get out of this mess? Or maybe it just says hope, or how to rebuild life, or... Something that maybe would make somebody want to open up. But then there's a subscription format, price included. uh, Quantity books of John given to you. They give you a quick step-by-step consideration of how to pass these out. Read, carry, and share. They say, read the Word of God yourself. Carry these testaments of John around with you, praying for the Lord to send to you who He wants uh, you to give this to. And then share when the opportunity seems to arise. They make lots of videos about their product to sell it. Story videos. Now you see how much I waste time. And uh, I think they made a video featuring the character of Kevin Davis because here is a video that a guy, I think how I might act, would act. And I have it ready for you. So give me a second. What's interesting to me is... Is this two uh, eras of church history? In James's day, there was this debate with the church. James, Peter, and Paul saying, "No, the uh, excuse me." There's this great wedge between the rest of the world and us," said the Jews, the Judaizers. They need to follow our law. And James is arguing from the scriptures, no, there is no wedge. Jesus has broken down that wall, to quote Paul. And in our day, I don't know about you, but for me, my wedge between the church and the rest of the world is often me. That's the wedge. See, here's where I am. I got convicted when I first watched that movie because I don't even have tracks with me to begin with. I just don't do that. Sure, I've had some talks with some people I've met through work or maybe over the Internet, but I wonder if sometimes what a person needs is the answer. It's just something as simple as a tract. 
I'm like that guy. But the reason that God has restored the temple in Jesus is so that the Gentiles and the rest of mankind, the remnant, can seek him. But, Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, Disciples are the spirit-empowered witnesses to bring those who seek the Lord to the Lord. See, the Holy Spirit's all up in it too, because he still does some Peter and Cornelius events in some small measure like we saw here. Sometimes people who've been wandering for three years are waiting for obedient Christians to just get over their fear or not, like this guy, and just give a Gospel of John something. Is that person a co-worker in your life or a neighbor, a family member who calls you up from time to time and doesn't know Jesus? Who is seeking the Lord? At the end of verse 17, beginning of verse 18, James seems to pull out a line from Isaiah 45:21. He says, Says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. And some of you, if you have a King James, New King James, you're wondering why the ESV left out some words uh, another Bible translation that puts those words back in the MEV says, says the Lord who does all these things known to God are all his works since the beginning of the world. See, there was this practice among rabbis in Jesus day, in James day, since chapter and verse was not invented, invented yet, rabbis would begin to quote a part of scripture, hoping to call to mind for their hearers, Uh, usually the scripture that was around it. For example, for you, Jesus on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was hoping to call to mind for his hearers Psalm 22, where that exact phrase comes from. Because if you read Psalm 22, that's a passage written by King David upwards thousands of years prior about the crucifixion of Christ. Fulfillment in Psalm 22. I think this is what's happening here with James. He's quoting from Isaiah 45:21, 45:21, but see the context around it. Isaiah, or God through Isaiah says, "Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together." That sounds familiar. Take counsel about maybe the Jews and Gentiles. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? That's the part that James may be quoting from. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. You hear the universal appeal in that, all the ends of the earth. Also, you hear the first part, turn to me and be saved. Don't turn to the law. Don't turn to a system or a religion or a thing, but to a being. Turn to God. Turn to me and be saved. Another trivial jeopardy fact for you, I believe it was this verse that captured the well-known pastor Charles Spurgeon's heart when he was converted. Isaiah continues, For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Again, universal, Jew Jew and Gentile. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So the council is meeting in Jerusalem. Gentiles were coming to Christ. They weren't keeping the law. They weren't circumcised. Nevertheless, they were being filled by God's Spirit. They were seeking to live God's way. Their affections were for for God, the God of Israel. Why? How come? The answer is Jesus Christ. 
I don't know about you, but I believe we live in a divided world. There seems to be Democrat, Republican. There seems to be black, white. There seems to be churched and unchurched. There seems to be polarizations everywhere. What's the answer? How do we rebuild humanity? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Because if Jesus is the answer, if God is the answer, then suddenly that means both sides have to start surrendering. And so it's not always the right trying to out-argue the left to bring them over to the right. But it's the right and left saying, I'm going to lay down all my stuff before the sovereign. I'm going to seek out the answer in Jesus Christ. And suddenly black people can say they're not raising their children to be black, but to be Christians. And suddenly the church doesn't need to try and convince the, the world to follow their rules. They instead can lead the world to Jesus and let Jesus handle any worldly problem and the breaking of the rules. Because the answer is not my way of thinking and their way of thinking. The answer was written for us. The answer was made flesh for us. The answer died for us. The answer rose again for us and the answer still reigns today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, at the end of the day, your word makes things so simple. In fact, too simple for some people who scoff and say, well, it can't be that. Because there's a part of us that likes long, drowned-out arguments and likes to legislate rules and, and relegate things and micromanage. And, but, Father, the answer is so simple, it's found in you. Somehow, you manage to become the answer for every situation. Help us to be about sharing your answer. Some of us don't even realize it, but we get so tangled up in the world's problems that we start fighting it in the world's ways. Father, the way that you fought was without violence. You came in and ushered an entire kingdom in that is still ruling and reigning today. You did it without violence. You did it without the way that the world does it. And Father, you call us to be a part of that kingdom. Help us to be obedient ambassadors of that kingdom and help us to remain about our business the way you want us to be about business. And Father, would you inspire us to become an answer in somebody else's life who, who knows, maybe they're waiting for an obedient Christian to just give him something simple. Sometimes we're afraid we have to have all the other answers, but actually you're calling us to go there because it's what we have to say, even though we might fumble over it, is exactly what you want them to hear. So help us to be about your business. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.